We see that the author was not Peter, the author was not Paul, the author was not Ezekiel. God was guiding the pen of these men. God was the author. We see this amazing scarlet thread of redemption written, woven throughout from Genesis to Revelation. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pilgrim Benham. I'm the lead pastor at Shoreline Church. And today we have a very special message on the canon of Scripture. We're going to be looking at John chapter 20 and have some fun with this message as we learn about where our Bibles come from. Hope you enjoy this message. We are going to have some fun today. Uh, Today we are going to be looking at John chapter 20, uh, the last two verses, as well as the last verse in the Gospel of John, John chapter 21. Uh, Next week, we're going to be seeing one of my favorite passages of Scripture, John 21, and we're going to see how Jesus restores Peter, who previously, as we've been following along in the Gospel of John, remember he denied the Lord three times. We're going to see him restored to Jesus, and we're going to be closing the Gospel of John after studying this incredible book. Haven't you loved it? For the last 12 months, it's been awesome. So as a church, if this is new for you, we teach through the Bible verse by verse, and we kind of bounce around to different books, uh, uh, guided by the Lord and kind of at the right time. And so we're uh, finishing the Gospel of John uh, next week. And then two weeks, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to be having Mother's Day. We're going to have a special message, uh, and it's just going to be a great time. But today, I've been excited about doing a teaching on these interesting verses, the last two verses of chapter 20 and the last verse in the Gospel of John. And this sermon is going to actually be a little bit less like a sermon and more like a lecture, okay? So I hope you're up for that. Some of you have been up late watching these crazy movies that are happening. So I hope you're awake this morning and got your coffee. If not, you have permission to get some coffee. Uh, And the reason we're devoting an entire sermon to this is because there's a kind of an important reason. Recently, uh, some mainline popular Protestant pastors in the last three or four years have come out saying, uh, with statements like this, they've said that, Uh, We went wrong as a church when we started saying, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There have been some statements that have been made where we need to unhitch from the Old Testament and that we need to just stick to the resurrection story and that's it. And that the Christianity is not creedal, that the Bible is not fully trustworthy, did Jonah really get swallowed by a fish, and all of these sorts of things um, that... Uh, challenge the authority and the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture. And so I think it's important for Christians to have confidence in the Scriptures, in what we believe. Uh, and so John ends his gospel giving us that, that same confidence. And so to that end, let's just pray, and then we'll jump into our time together. All right? Lord, thank you for your word. We build our lives, as we'll sing later today, upon the bedrock foundation of the unchanging truth of Scripture. And we thank you that you have given us this opportunity and this freedom today to study it. And we thank you that all Scripture has been given by inspiration uh, of God, so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So to that end, we ask you to bless this time and to speak and encourage and instruct us, maybe in a way we've never been instructed before. Give us new knowledge, new insight, so that we can walk away with more confidence in the Scriptures, not less 
confidence, more, more questions, more doubting. More confidence today, we ask. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's look at the last two verses of John 20. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Notice with me three things that John was saying here. First note that he says, this account is not exhaustive, but selective. You know the difference? Uh, this is a selective group of uh, stories. Secondly, we realize that John is saying the things that I included in my gospel account are written so that it would invoke faith in the reader, or you could say provoke faith, that when you read this, you suddenly will know that Jesus is the Son of God. And thirdly, notice that he says, by believing in Jesus, you may have life in his name. Now, we'll be coming back to those three ideas at the end of our time together, but for now, look over at John 21, the very last verse in the Gospel of John. John 21, verse 25 says this, now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Notice John's logic. He says, I didn't include everything that Jesus did, that everything that Jesus taught in my short account. Uh, but if we did try to make an exhaustive list, we would run out of real estate on the planet, filling it with libraries of books that contained all that Jesus did. Now, John's not being dramatic. He's not being extreme here. Uh, this verse, 25, reminds me of this amazing hymn called The Love of God. It's written by Frederick Martin Lehman. Here's the words on the screen. He says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. It really would take every square inch of planet earth to house the books written about all that Jesus did and taught in his earthly ministry. So John and the other gospel writers had to be very selective in what they included in their accounts. Remember, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different aspects of Jesus' uh, life and ministry. Matthew was writing to a, a predominantly uh, Jewish audience. So when you read Matthew, you, you get a lot of Old Testament prophecies, Old Testament verses that he quotes and that he references. When we look at Mark, Mark was a very short gospel. Mark was writing to a Roman audience. And the Romans typically want to see action. And so we see in the Gospel of Mark 1,375 times the word and is written. Jesus did this and, he did this and, he did that. Just bustling along uh, story after story, action after action. Very little uh, parables, but a lot of action in Mark's Gospel. And then you have Luke. And Luke we know was a Greek. We know he was a physician. He's kind of thorough. And so he's writing to a Greek audience or a Greco audience. And as he's writing, um, he's actually um, writing part one of two. His sequel is known as the, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. And he says in Acts chapter one, hey, Theophilus, whose name means lover of God, he says, hey, in my former account, I began to write all that Jesus did and taught. And so he really focuses on a, on a fair amount of balance of the things Jesus did and the, the teachings Jesus gave. So you see a lot of teachings coming out of the Gospel of Luke, more than any of the other Gospels. 
And then you have John. And John was a close follower of Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. So you see an up-close uh, picture of Jesus who uh, is, uh, more than any of the other Gospels, a picture of his deity. And so where ultimately did these guys go from seeing Jesus or hearing the stories of Jesus and then writing them down, and then now we have our Bibles? What happened in between? What was the process, or if we call it the canonization of Scripture? Uh, how do we go from the resurrection to our New Testaments? And can we trust the Bible? Can we leave today with more confidence? Uh, and if the Bible is true, maybe the most important question today, if the Bible is true, and I'm not saying if because I doubt that, if it's true, then how do we order our lives accordingly? Should we leave today with maybe a changed life? So that's what we're going to answer today. And what I want to do is look at four big aspects of Scripture today. Uh, what I'm going to do, though, is we'll put them on the screen. Uh, if you've been following on the Bible app, you'll notice we don't have the notes on there today. Uh, we're actually going to be posting everything from today, the sermon, uh, all of the references that I give, all of the links to the content I studied for today. All of that's going to be available on, let me give you the website, so write this down. I don't have it on the screen. Here it is. This is shoreline.com forward slash canon. Now, don't be that guy. It's not C-A-N-N-O-N, -N, like we're shooting cannons at Pirates of the Caribbean, okay? It's C-A-N-O-N, -N, okay? This is shoreline.com forward slash canon, C-A-N-O-N, all right? Uh, that's where you can go. Even now, there's some information on there that you can follow along. So what I want to do is look at four big aspects. You guys ready for this? Let's dive in. Number one, we're going to look at uh, revelation of Scripture, the revelation of Scripture, Okay, so I want you guys to be jotting some things down. The first thing I want you to jot down under this note is that there are two types of revelation, two types. Now, I'm not saying the book of Revelation, right? By the way, it's not the book of Revelations. Can we settle that today? It's the book singular. It's one revelation, one unveiling, apocalypsis, one unveiling of Jesus. It's not multiple. So we're not talking about the book of Revelation. Go home and read it later. We're talking about two types of revelation on the screen. We have general revelation and special revelation, all right? So general revelation is basically God's witness of himself through creation to his creatures, through creation. That's general revelation. Psalm 19 captures this amazingly, where it says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Okay, But here's the thing. General revelation is limited. What I'm not saying is when you go to Disney or to the beach, and suddenly there's someone painting Jesus loves you in the sky. That's not what I'm saying. Oh, it's in the clouds. Wow, general. No, that's not the idea. See, general revelation is limited. Though his voice has gone out into all the world and no one is without excuse, the reality is that the ultimate end of general revelation is that it leaves us in a situation where we can't stand before God in the judgment and say, I didn't know that you existed. No, he's written it in all of creation, his existence. And so the problem is, though, it doesn't show us how to be reconciled with him. It doesn't take that next step, that next level. And you cannot be saved by merely understanding general revelation. There's not some tribe somewhere that says, well, we kind of get this idea, so we're gonna be in heaven. That's not the idea. You need to rethink your ecclesiology if that's what you believe. And that's where special revelation comes in. And that's, as Pastor Micah said, the need for us to go into all the world. 
We need to go into every people group and share the gospel message because there are many still today who have not yet heard. And so special revelation is different. Special revelation is when God reveals himself directly. He's done that in various ways. He's done that through direct acts. He's done that uh, through uh, dreams or visions. He's done that in what we call scripture. And of course, in the greatest way he's done that, in the incarnation, uh, the person and work of Jesus. So general revelation is going to perish one day because it's nature, but we're told in God's word that his word, this special revelation, will never fade away. General revelation, the means of it, has become cursed and corrupted. But see, the word of God, according to itself, is holy, righteous, pure, and good. And, and David in Psalm 19 later says that the law of God is perfect. Uh, it's, it's perfect. And so how did God then reveal himself? How did he reveal himself specially, in a special way? So what I want to do just for a minute is kind of put ourselves in the camp of Israel. I want to kind of take you there. Uh, we're going to go to the wilderness between Egypt uh, and the promised land. In this kind of body of believers, so to speak, Israel, God has promised uh, to bring us somewhere, and he's revealed himself to our leader, Moses, and uh, he's leading us, and, and we have um, this moment right before Moses goes up to the uh, top of Mount Sinai uh, to meet with God. And so you and I have been delivered out of Egypt. We've been delivered from oppression. It's an amazing moment from slavery, and now God has called us uh, for about three days to set ourselves holy and apart to consecrate ourselves for this moment, okay? So just picture what this would have been like. There's this mountain that God's gonna meet with Moses and to even go up and, oops, rest your hand on the edge of it, just to touch the side of the mountain, beast or human would have killed you. There's smoke, there's thunder, this is terrifying. In fact, I think we have a verse, Exodus 19. You can jot this reference down, 16 through 20. I'll just summarize it, it was really scary. This is a scary, heavy, judgment-type moment God is answering Moses in the thunder and calling him up to the top of the mountain, and the people are trembling. You could uh, just feel probably the awe and the fear in the camp of Israel. And so within a matter of time, Moses comes down. He descends down from the mountain and, and has what we call the Ten Commandments. These, of course, were the stone tablets that, that God himself had inscribed his law upon, uh, his covenant with his people. But see, this was not the first time that God had spoken. Remember, if you turn your Bibles all the way back to Genesis 1-3, it says in Genesis 1-3, uh, the third verse in the Bible, God says, let there be light. So God speaks from the very opening pages of Scripture. How do we know that? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever been sitting around like, how do we know this whole creation account? Well, we know that God and Adam walked together, that there was that sense of communion. And so God would have recounted to Adam this story. Adam would have shared that account with Seth, who would have shared it eventually with his sons. It would have gotten down to Abraham. It would have eventually gotten to Moses. And remember, if you look at the ages of people, I mean, it's hard enough to live to 85 nowadays. These people were living longer. And so they were ultimately um, sharing the story. And some of the, some of the patriarchal older guys would have still been alive. So they could have cleared it up as they're orally sharing the story. Now, that part wasn't right. Clear that up. And it would have been transmitted. Uh, from person to person. So uh, Moses essentially writes the first five books of the Bible. Uh, he uh, pens what we call the Pentateuch, written by Moses, 
and scribing out, literally penning out this oral tradition onto parchment. Uh, we have Joshua then convinced God wants him to continue sharing the acts of God and recording his acts. And so then we have the time of the judges, and then we have a time of prophets, priests, and kings. And the idea basically uh, was that the prophets would write down what God was communicating to them. We have this phrase, thus saith the Lord, hundreds and hundreds of times. And whatever's written right after that is a direct reference uh, from what God had revealed. Okay, you guys still with me? So from Genesis 1-3, right, to Malachi's end, we have a record of God communicating to his people. Uh, but see, Mount Sinai was the first time that the covenant was to be written down, recorded, displayed, recounted, and remembered. It was a very special moment in Israel's history, a very special time. And so the Jewish Bible, if you were to go to some friends, and, and if there's been a tragic shooting uh, yesterday in a synagogue and a friend of mine's community uh, in California, uh, so continue to pray for that community. But if we were to go to the local synagogue and we were to say, can I see your Torah? And you were to say, yes. And you could say, let me look at the last book of your Torah and how it's arranged. It's arranged differently than our Bibles. The Jews end their scripture with chronicles. Not first and second, like we've added, but just chronicles. And chronicles, of course, is this book that captures the recorded acts of David. The idea is that the Jews close their Torah with the concept of we are looking forward to someone who will come in the line of David, who will be seated on the throne of David, who will, his kingdom will never come to an end. We're looking forward to that. And so their Bibles end with this anticipation for a Messiah who would come and continue the line of the throne of David. Isn't that really interesting? Did you know that the New Testament picks up where? What, what's the first book of our New Testament? Don't be shy, what is it? Matthew. Matthew 1.1 reads this way on the screen. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we have this genealogy where we can trace back uh, all the lineage of Jesus back to King David and then back to Father Abraham. So you have the arrival of Jesus, who I call the true and better Sinai, the Mount Zion. We have this great picture of Jesus being God's self-disclosure to his people. As the law was insufficient, ultimately, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. We learn from John 1, 17, that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says on the screen. He says in chapter 12, you have not come to that mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. But you and I have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn. Wouldn't that be a great name for a church? Hey, welcome to the church of the firstborn. I love that. Whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and then this, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Jesus, according to John's gospel in the opening pages, he is the word. He's the word made flesh. The revelation of God to his people is the scripture, and it's Jesus who is the word made flesh. Now, when we look at the book of Hebrews, which we just referenced, and we go all the way back to chapter one, stay with me, John, or Hebrews 1, 1 says this, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke 
to our fathers by the prophets. God revealed himself, special revelation, in many different ways. But in these last days, he's limited his special revelation to speak through his son. See, God may have revealed himself in the past through dreams and through visions. He may have revealed himself through a burning bush. He may have come uh, as, like, thus saith the Lord to the prophets. Uh, He may have even spoken through a donkey to Balaam. But today, in these last days, that time has ended. And he now speaks to his church through his son, who is the word made flesh. And so we believe that the Bible is God's special revelation to man. And we believe that the Bible testifies of Jesus Christ. He says, it's written of me in the volume of the book. And Jesus is the express image of the invisible God. So Jesus, the scriptures, that is God's special revelation to us. Isn't that awesome? Uh, So let's look at our second big idea. So that's revelation. Secondly, inspiration. Jot that down, inspiration. And I want to connect these two ideas. All right, so inspiration we get from 2 Timothy 3.16. I kind of prayed this earlier, but on the screen, 2 Timothy, Paul says this to Timothy. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable or useful for a variety of things. It's useful for teaching. That's what we're doing today, instruction. It's useful for reproof, where we need to say to someone, hey, bro, uh, this is an area of sin in your life, and here's a Scripture. It's not just my argument against you. It's the Bible. It's useful for correction, which means to set a bone back in place. So it helps us get back on the right path if we're straying. And it's useful for training in righteousness. By the way, that's, I think, a big reason uh, that our kids' ministry and our youth ministry, Lighthouse, exists. They exist to train our children in righteousness. But we're also being trained in righteousness. And look at verse 17. The purpose of this is so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly complete, equipped for every good work. That's the purpose of the church, is to equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry. We want you to be thoroughly equipped. We're not here to put on a show. We're not here to entertain. We're here to equip, okay? And so did you catch that phrase in verse 16, breathed out by God? The word is inspired by God. Now, this doesn't mean like, man, I was really inspired by that Michael Buble album. I was just so inspired. That's not the idea, all right? The idea of inspiration is that the Holy Spirit, listen, inspired the writers to write what they wrote. So what's the difference between revelation and inspiration? Well, Alfred Martin says this, revelation is the communicating of what otherwise could not be known. But inspiration is the recording of that truth. You guys see the difference? God reveals himself and then inspiration is, okay, I need to jot this down. Okay, you see the difference? Uh, John Walvert said, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God supernaturally directed the writers of Scripture so that God's own complete and coherent message to men was recorded in perfect accuracy. Now, how did God accomplish this? Not through what is called the dictation theory, okay? The dictation theory is what Muslims believe uh, uh, Allah communicated to Muhammad, and that is that he just sat there and wrote down, dictated exactly what Muhammad said. That's not the idea in the inspiration of Scripture, uh, so dictation is where someone says, you know, here's, you've done this on your phone, right? You're like, hey, call mom. And it's like, it's like calling, you know, Starbucks. You're like, no, that's not mom. And so then, then you're, you're leaving messages for people, right? You're texting people, and then you go back and look at the text that you said. I didn't say that. I'm so sorry. There was a word in there I did not include. I am really, please forgive me. And then it's like, you know, it doesn't, doesn't do it right. That's not the idea. The idea is that God, listen, 
God inspires an individual to write something, but what is written reflects the style of the one doing the writing, okay? So in the Bible, the style of Paul is very different than John, and that's very different than Luke, who's very different than Peter. All of the people who wrote Scripture used their own style and their own vocabulary, and the Holy Spirit inspired them to write down his message. We would say this morning that we believe, as Christians, in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Okay? Verbal meaning the words themselves, not just the meaning behind the words, but the words themselves are inspired in the original documents. Plenary meaning all or the fullness, all of Scripture is included in that. So listen, some have said the Bible contains the Word of God. No, the Bible is the Word of God. Okay, do you guys see the difference? Plenary meaning all. So it's not just the red letters, okay? Uh, we do not believe in the eraser Bible here at Shoreline, okay, where you just kind of like, oh, I don't like that. I'm going to disagree with that. I'm going to take this out. I'm going to edit. It's the edited version. No, we believe in all Scripture being breathed out by God. Uh, Peter said this in 2 Peter 1. Verses 20 and 21, he says, Knowing this first, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. So you can't go home today and go, and eh, the verse is literally about me. You know, Peter was writing this specific thing about me personally. No, uh, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke, look at this, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay? We believe that God, by his Spirit, inspired every word penned by the human authors in each of the 66 books of the Bible in the original documents. Paul told the church in Thessalonica this, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He said, we also thank God constantly for this. Look at this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Okay, this, these are not the words of men, which are fallible, but the, this is the word of God. And if that's the case, then we really should have no problem with the third idea here. Jot this down, guys. Third idea is the inerrancy of Scripture. The inerrancy of Scripture basically means without error, okay? Uh, now, the Bible attests about itself that it's without error. And I understand the circular reasoning that you could argue against that. But just for a minute, Psalm, uh, or Proverbs 30, verse 5 says that every word of God is true. Uh, John 10.35 says, Scripture cannot be broken. It doesn't mean that, oh, I can break a command. No, it means that Scripture itself can't be, like, cracked, right? It can't be broken. Psalm 12.6 says, the words of the Lord are pure. Okay, now, follow my train of thought. If God is perfect, and then God speaks, then what he speaks cannot be grammatically incorrect, cannot be off, cannot be full of error. If he's perfect, if he's true, and then he speaks, what he speaks is perfect and true. Nod your head in agreement if you follow my, my train of thought. Now, all right, good, both of you understand. Now, infallibility is related to inerrancy, but they're different. Let me explain this concept. Infallibility means not able to be wrong. Not even able to be wrong, it's infallible. And I wanna point this out, writers are fallible. Writers are fallible, but the writings are not. So when someone says something in scripture, as you're reading along, you're like, whoa, that doesn't seem right. As someone in Scripture says something, like Psalm 14.1 says, there is no God. Did you know that? Psalm 14.1 says, there is no God. I'm sorry to break that news to you today. I know he's risen, but the Bible says there's no God. Well, actually, the first part of that verse says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, okay? So obviously, 
there's something going on here. The Bible's capturing false statements uttered by ignorant people, okay? Now, the fact that they're uttered doesn't mean the Bible's not true. It's just pointing out that they're, they're being said. Like in Ecclesiastes, if you didn't understand Ecclesiastes, we did this, uh, I think, two years ago, we did a study through all the verses in Ecclesiastes. If you didn't realize that it's written from a perspective under the sun, trying to attain meaning and purpose and, and worth in life apart from God, as if there is no God, atheistically, then the book of Ecclesiastes says this is it. This is the top uh, purpose of life. If you don't understand that, there's some statements you could read in there going, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's the chief end of man. I don't get it. I don't understand. Just eat, drink, and be merry, and then tomorrow we die. That doesn't seem, well, that sounds fun, but I don't know if that's the purpose of life. Uh, there's things in the Bible where Job's friends offer awful counsel. So the Bible, even Satan bringing lies. So these are captured in the scripture. That doesn't mean the scripture is false. You guys follow that? Let me just give you another example. Um, recently on Facebook, you guys know I love pranking. So April Fool's happened. And on April Fool's, a fake Facebook profile that pretended to be Sarasota County came out with this news story. They said that there are chickens that fell out of Zaxby's truck on Honoré Avenue. And Chick-fil-A went and picked them up and cleaned them up and then they'll be serving them and it's all good. Well, here's the funny thing. WFLA, News Channel 8, saw that it was Sarasota County and picked up the news story. They actually ran the news story. And I went to find the link for you guys and it says you've reached this link in error. And I thought that was kind of funny. Um, so I couldn't show you the link. They've taken it down, obviously. Now the details in the story of the news were fake. They're in error. But the fact that I just told you that doesn't mean that I'm now an heir. Do you guys follow me? The Bible records things that happen, and it's not giving word to them. It's just saying that they happen. And so we believe that the Bible is without error. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, and we believe it's unable to be wrong, the infallibility of Scripture. From the opening pages of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, one of Satan's ploys is to challenge the Word of God, to say, did God really say and anytime you're listening to someone who says, well, I don't know if the Bible says that, and they challenge the authority of Scripture, they challenge the inerrancy of Scripture, then you're on a slippery slope towards ultimate false teaching. The postmodern kind of culture that we live in today, many people try to like infuse that into church and say, well, let's just deconstruct. Let's, just, let's ask questions and kind of tear down the concept of hell. Let's tear down the concept of the deity of Christ. Let's tear down these ideas and then we'll reconstruct. No, no, we're to rest on the finished uh, truth of the scripture and not try to tear it apart. Uh, we can rest in it. Satan will always challenge the word of God. And this is not novel to the enlightenment or to postmodernism. It's been this way since the beginning. One person said this, I love this. Men don't disagree with the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. Isn't that crazy? You see, that makes it incredibly important, I'd say even critical, that we know what God's word actually says. So that someone doesn't come along and say, well, maybe this is what the Bible says. We'd be able to recognize it immediately. I know some of you ladies are reading Jesus Calling. The idea behind this book is that this woman hears Jesus' voice. And the strange thing is Jesus sounds a lot like a 40, 50-year-old woman who lives in the words of Jesus. And we should be able to discern the words of Jesus in the scripture versus someone who's purporting to be speaking for Jesus, okay? You understand the difference? And so we're gonna do something fun today, all right? We're gonna have some fun here. I'm gonna give you a phrase 
And I want you to tell me if this is in the Bible or not, okay? So you're going to just yell out, yes, that's in the Bible. And there's no judgment here. I'm not going to see you, like, saying, there's spotlights too bright. I can't see you anyway. Um, So, or I won't look. I'll just look down, okay? You don't need to be embarrassed, but I'm going to say, is this in the Bible? And you're just going to say yes after I say the quote or no, okay? You ready for this? That's where you answer. Are you ready for this? Okay, good practice run. All right. Uh, The Bible says that we should have moderation in all things. No, that's not in the Bible. That's Aristotle. All right, that's not in the Bible. Uh, The love of money is the root of all evil. Yes, Uh, it's often misquoted. Just money is the root of all evil, but 1 Timothy 6.10. Very good. Good job. Well done. We're not done, though. Spare the rod, spoil the child. It's not in the Bible. No. Proverbs 13.24. Read it later. Proverbs 13.24. To thine own self be true. Nah, that's Hamlet. (laughs) It's not in the Bible. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yes, that is in the Bible. Yes, Matthew 7.12. God helps those who help themselves. (laughs) Thank you. I'm so glad that you got that right. Thank you. That is actually Benjamin Franklin in Poor Richard's Almanac. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Although we think it's true, it's not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. This too shall pass. We're on the fence on this one. It's not in the Bible. This too shall pass is not in the Bible. Sorry, busted. Uh, God will give you, I'm sorry, God will not give you more than you can bear. A little bit. Uh, kind of. So he will not give you more temptation that you're able to bear. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I know I'm being tricky. Uh, God works in mysterious ways. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Go look it up. Um, The eye is the window to the soul. No, it's not in the Bible. uh, Matthew 6, 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. All right, some of you are giving up. Now, don't give up. We're almost done. We're almost done. The lion shall lay down with the lamb. Mm, Isaiah eleven six. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Yeah, yeah. I know. I'm tricking you. All right. Pride comes before the fall. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride comes before destruction. All right. There. The Bible says that there were three wise men that visited Jesus. Three wise men. Nope. There were three gifts, but not three wise men. Uh, judge not, lest you be judged. You guys should know this. It's the most quoted verse from every non-believer in the world, Matthew 7.1. Judge not, bro. All right? Yes, that is in the Bible. Finally, the Bible talks about seven deadly sins. No, not in the Bible. That's Chaucer, all right? But Proverbs 6 does mention six. All right, awesome. Well done. Give give yourselves a hand. Good job. (laughs) Sorry, I've got some work to do. Here's what E.J. Young says. He says, by this word, inerrancy... We mean that the scriptures possess the quality of freedom from error. They are exempt from the liability to mistake. That's the wrong one. They're exempt from the liability to mistake, incapable of error. In all their teachings, they are in perfect accord with the truth. Okay? If we doubt the trustworthiness of the scriptures, what can happen? We then doubt the uh, historical fall of Adam. We start doubting the existence of miracles, and we just explain them away. We're more susceptible 
to embrace a different gospel, like liberation theology, like the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. Uh, We start changing our stance on adultery, homosexuality, divorce, and then we reinterpret some of the teachings of the Bible, even though they're crystal clear, and we say, those are just cultural. Things like the role of women in the home and church. And we're tempted to start looking at the Bible as if it were a grand narrative about us rather than uh, Christ displayed through the volume of the book. Church, inerrancy is a big deal. And I encourage you to check out the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And we'll have a link in um, the page that we um, share on the website. Uh, The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy is written in an amazing year. The year was 1978. And um, this is one of the statements. It says, the authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own. And such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. Do you see that second word? The authority of Scripture. That's our fourth idea today. Jot this down. Authority. We believe in the authority of Scripture. Now, going back to John's gospel, verse, uh, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says there's a lot of other things that Jesus did, but they weren't recorded. But see, the early church began with a foundation of submitting to the apostles' teaching. And this came directly out of the gospel writings. The apostles, Paul and James and Peter and John, who's writing this, also wrote letters to Uh, other people, and those letters began being circulated throughout the universal church. And when they did, the church recognized that God was speaking and inspiring these writers to pen his words. So here's an interesting question. What if we found a missing letter of Paul's? We know that he wrote two uh, letters to Corinth, but we actually wrote more than that. So what if archaeologists tomorrow discovered that there's this letter and it's penned by Paul, And it seems to be coming, they do the dating, and it seems to be coming from the first century. Should we then take it and include it in the canon of Scripture? My argument would be no, we shouldn't, because the Scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit who brought about the form that we have today. Don't overthink this and try to put some type of man-centered counsel that that kept out a lot of good books that should have been in. Uh, that's not the idea at all. So how did we get the 27 books in our New Testaments, or what we call the canon of Scripture? The canon just means the measuring rod or the, the list. How do we get that? Again, we have to come back to this truth that Jesus is God's self-disclosure. He is the Word made flesh. And so like the young nation of Israel, the church, the young church needed authoritative writings to circulate, to memorize, and to submit to, which communicated God's covenant to his people. They needed that. And so before the second century had concluded, we have what's called the Muratorian Fragment. 22 out of 27 of the books that we have today were listed before the end of the second century. Here's what uh, Dr. Michael Kruger, he's the expert in the study of the canon, the premier expert. He's with uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. Here's what he has to say. He says, these include, the Muratorian Fragment includes the four Gospels, Acts, all 13 epistles of Paul, Jude, 1 John, 2 John, and possibly 3 John, and Revelation. He says this means that at a remarkably early point, the end of the second century, the central core of the New Testament canon was already established and in place. Guys, I want to give you 10 things that we should all know about the canon, okay? 10 things, and you can take a picture of the screens if you want. 
Each of these 10 things are a separate article written by Dr. Kruger, and all of them are gonna be on the website with links, okay? So you can go back and do some, some deeper reading. But 10 things you need to know about the canon. I'll just walk through each one of these. Number one, the New Testament books are the earliest Christian writings that we possess. So if we wanna find out what authentic Christianity was really like, then we should rely on the teachings that are the nearest to that time period. Secondly, apocryphal writings are all written in the second century or later. So those are the books, the apocryphal uh, writings are outside of our current canon, outside of scripture. And so that should put to rest the arguments for them. Number three, the New Testament books are unique because they're apostolic books. So the apostles wrote the books of the New Testament or the person writing was directly related in some way to the apostles. There was a close proximity. I'll look at number four, some New Testament writers quote other New Testament writers as scripture. This is really cool. 1 Timothy 5.18 says, for the scripture says, Paul's saying that. And then he immediately quotes Deuteronomy 25.4 in the first half of the verse. And then he quotes Luke 10.7 in the second half. He says, the scriptures say this. And then he quotes Old and New Testament. Peter, in 2 Peter 3.15 and 16, he says, these guys distort Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures. The idea is that Peter, in the Greek, is putting together the other scriptures and Paul's writings. He's saying they're the same. They're all scripture. It's really interesting. Look at number five. The four gospels are well established by the end of the second century. Okay, that's important. And that leads to number six on the screen. Number six says, at the end of the second century, the Muratorian fragment lists 22 of our 27 New Testament books. Okay? Um, that means that there was a widespread agreement over the core of our New Testament from a very early time. The church agreed with it. And number seven, early Christians often used non-canonical writings, uh, writings that are outside of our scripture. Now, even though they did do that, uh, they were doing that, they were quoting them because those books were helpful, they were illuminating, they were um, insightful and edifying. But that doesn't mean that they put them on the same part of scripture. Okay? Think of it this way. I quote, some of you have pointed out, they're like, every sermon, there's a Charles Spurgeon quote. Every single sermon. And you're right, just about. Does that mean, church, true or false, that I put Charles Spurgeon's quotes on equal par with Scripture? No, of course not. Right? It's still subservient to the Scripture, and we should understand that as well. Number eight, the New Testament canon was not decided at Nicaea nor any other church council. We often misunderstand this. We think these guys came together and they said, we're keeping all of the other stuff out. The, the, the Da Vinci Code, fictional book, tried to uh, posit that idea, and it's just silly. Number nine, Christians did disagree about the canonicity of some New Testament books, and this shouldn't scare us. You don't need to be afraid of this. Like, the canon was not given to us like the Book of Mormon was purportedly given to Joseph Smith, written, transcribed on gold tablets. That's not the idea. Uh, so it took time right? It took time for the church to circulate this. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have Facebook. It's not like they post something and immediately people knew what was going on. It took time. It took many decades for the books to get around. And these books had question marks on some of them for the church community. Some, some like Origen mentions that 2 Peter and 2 and 3 John and James were doubted and disputed by some in his day. Some people didn't think John wrote Revelation, so they were curious, like, should we include this? And it took time. But finally, number 10, early Christians believed that canonical books were self-authenticating. This means that the books we read in our current New Testament 
bear certain attributes that distinguish them from uh, other writings as being genuinely from God. The early church believed that these books were self-authenticating. As Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and they know my voice and I know them and they follow me. There's this sense of being able to discern that this was indeed the voice of God. You don't believe me? Go read the Shepherd of Hermas and compare that to the New Testament. Read the Shepherd of Hermas in your spare time in Google this week and then come back and say, yeah, that's not inspired by God. It's clear, all right? Uh, this was truly a work of God. Now, according to Guinness, the Bible is still the world's most distributed book. It has been translated currently in over 1,600 languages. With its 66 books written over the span of 15 centuries by 40 different authors with all these different backgrounds and all these different countries, including shepherds. Just think about this. The writers of the, the Bible, shepherds, governors, doctors, kings, accountants, fishermen, tent makers, religious leaders. And we have writings that span a lot of different topics, religion, love, war, poetry, foretelling the future, songs, wise sayings, different narratives about betrayal and bravery and honor and cowardice and obedience and rebellion. Now imagine <laughs> that Oprah decides to get her book club together and she's gonna get 40 different authors that are gonna write from the span of the fifth century to today, 1,500 years or so. And they're gonna write just on three topics. They're gonna write on the origin of the universe, they're gonna write on what happens when we die and what does the end of the world look like, just three topics. And she takes these writers with the same different backgrounds on those three topics. Just imagine from page to page, from author to author, chapter to chapter, it's gonna be completely different. It's gonna be this hodgepodge, this crazy patchwork of differing ideas. And yet when we look at the scriptures, what do we see? We see that the author was not Peter, the author was not Paul, the author was not Ezekiel. God was guiding the pen of these men. God was the author. We see this amazing scarlet thread of redemption written, woven throughout from Genesis to Revelation. And one person said this, what the reformers sought to affirm. I got ahead of myself. Wayne Grudem said this first. Wayne Grudem said this about authority. He said, the authority of scripture means that all the words in scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. See, church, if we believe in the revelation and the inspiration and the inerrancy uh, and in the authority of Scripture, then we must order our lives accordingly. The reformers believed in what was called sola scriptura. That means that Scripture alone is the highest authority in our lives. That means that what we do and believe in regards to sexuality, in regards to marriage, in regards to law, in regards to economics, in regards to how we live as citizens on this planet, all of those should be submitted to the authority of Scripture. And here's the quote. What the Reformers sought to affirm, and what we must continue to uphold is this, that the Bible alone, because it is God's direct and inspired word to us, should be the, quote, decider. In essence, we should all look at our Bibles and think, the buck stops here. Amen? So what does that mean for us? Returning to our text in John, look at John 20, verse 31 with me. It says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life 
in his name. Why did John include what he did and leave out what he did? Why? Because he wanted to provoke the reader to faith in Jesus Christ. By reading the Gospel of John, we may come to believe in Jesus and thus have true eternal life. That's why when I meet someone and I find that they don't know Jesus, I say, hey, why don't you investigate the claims of Christ like I did and start in the Gospel of John? I mean, where else should we encourage them to start? The, bio, the book of John was written so that you would believe. Uh, so, man, where, should, where else should they start? Church, may we spend our days listening to the Word of God, to the voice of God. And some of you say, I want to hear God speak. Well, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. <laughs> he desires to communicate the personal work of His Son, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth to those who would take time to hear. As we close, I want to invite our worship team to close us in song. We're going to sing about this, how we build our life upon the Word, the Word of God. I think it's only appropriate for us to close our message today with a Spurgeon quote. Makes sense. <laughs> he says this, man, this will convict. If you find a professing Christian indifferent to his Bible, you may be sure that the very dust upon its cover will rise up in judgment against him. Wow, let's pray. Lord, may we see the beauty, the complexity, the power, and the authority in your holy scriptures. Lord, would you stir us up to spend time sitting at your feet, listening to you, knowing your voice by discerning it because we've spent time reading it, memorizing it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We're so thankful, Lord, that you've revealed yourself to each one of us. Lord, we don't wanna gather dust on our Bible. We wanna spend time understanding it, growing it, growing in it, meditating on it. We wanna move from milk to solid food, from needing someone that we rely on to feed us, to being able to feed ourselves on the pure milk of the word. Lord, we desire to grow. And so Lord, would you equip us, would you show us today that our lives are to be submitted to the scriptures alone as the highest authority. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, who is the word made flesh. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.